0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Paul Collier, who is a professor of economics and public policy at Oxford University, and the author of many books. Most recently, this one called The Future of Capitalism. But of course, I think best known for this book right here, The Bottom Billion, and this one too, which is Wars, Guns, and Votes. Not the only books that you've written, but three of the ones that I was able to uh, locate in my library, and so welcome, Paul.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Greg.
0: Now, this latest book of yours is a bit of a departure because you've spent most of your career thinking about development, the obstacles to development, policies that improve development. And this book is really about the West. It's about the developed countries. And I think it's kind of like a cre de sort of a comment on some of the divisions and social problems that we've been experiencing, certainly in Britain and in the UK. What motivated you to sort of switch your focus to the problems of Britain and the US?
1: Partly that I didn't go in search of the problems the problems I've been working on for a long time came in search of me. So some of the issues that I've been all too familiar with in poor countries started to surface in rich ones, both yours and mine. And also I, I, have this, if you like, the lived experience of two different worlds. So now I'm, in all honesty, pretty fancy. I'm live very well in lovely in North Oxford which is considered the highest ratio of house prices to income in the whole of Britain. A lot of my neighbors are North Americans because it's such a lovely place to live and if you can afford it you come here. I was the last professor to buy my street and that was over 30 years ago so I made a lot of money.
0: Sounds like Berkeley.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right it's the same sort of story yeah but I didn't start life like that. I started life very differently. I was born in Sheffield Northern industrial city. Some of your readers might have seen the film Monty, which was very popular about 20 years ago. It was a very funny, sad film. And that was Sheffield. It was about the destruction of a big industrial city. Sheffield was America's Pittsburgh, and it crashed. It totally crashed. The steel industry just closed pretty rapidly over a course of about three years. Well, that was my relatives. By then, I'd left Sheffield, but it was my home. All my relatives were there. I was the only member of my family to get to university. Both my parents left school when they were 12. And so I was the, the freak that magical things happened to me. I was in just the right place at just the right time. A good, free school. The astonishing feat of getting as a student to Oxford. And then up the ladder, I rose with the usual progression. Meanwhile, my cousin, was born on the same day as me, in the same place, in the same social class. If you open your little book, Future of Capitalism, you'll find right early on, there's a photograph of the two of us together when we were age four. I can still remember that photograph. And there we were in a very similar position. We both got to good state-provided free schools. And then her life diverged from mine through random shocks. But it diverged very badly and very radically. And I started to realize just how good luck versus bad luck could then compound and roll down the generations. So she became a teenage mother. Both her daughters became teenage mothers. And one of them stumbled into a complete nightmare. And I'm bringing up two of the children that were born to her. Wonderful kids. But that was a searing experience, both of the geographic divide of living in this hyper-prosperous place of Oxford and seeing this catastrophe in my hometown, but also being on this rising ladder of fancy education and then off you go versus all my relatives who'd invested in manual skills, the skills of steel workers. And all their skills evaporated. The pride that they took in their work Disappeared. The work disappeared. One of my relatives ended up earning a living cleaning toilets, and so this astonishing divergence in my own life brought me round to realizing something needed to be done about that. And it wasn't that it was just happening to a few people. In both Britain and America, those divergences, the spatial divergence between booming metropolises and broken provincial towns and cities, and that divergence between a hyper-educated success with fancy skills on top versus manual skills that became worthless, that divide became true of our entire societies of America and Britain, and not just America and Britain, but especially America and Britain. So the Anglo-Saxon world got a very bad dose of social divergence.
0: This gap between kind of the metropolitan elites and the the people you know you call the sans cool right the people who are in these left behind areas i think you quoted someone as saying that the elites view themselves as kind of dragging around a corpse right which is the the non-metropolitan areas and so these divides i mean they they remind me a bit of some of the tribal divisions that you refer to or the ethnic divisions that you see in, in developing countries I studied development economics. We used to talk about how the urban areas would more or less exploit the rural areas by demanding things from the state. And so whether it's subsidized food or whatever, but the rural areas would be basically sucked dry. And if you wanted to succeed, you had to more or less move into the city. Now, this is clearly a very different dynamic, but it does have some echoes with the work that you've done in the emerging markets where you don't have a unified national identity.
1: Absolutely. So the The paper I'm writing at the moment is called Lobotomized Societies, and in a way I've been working on lobotomized societies in poor countries for many, many years, where they're lobotomized spatially, as you've just said, but also lobotomized in terms of tribal groups, loyalties, ethnic groups, or racial divides. And now our own societies are becoming lobotomized into these divides between an outsider social class that lives in nowhere places, and an insider class that is skilled, confident, doesn't see that there's anything wrong, and is confident of its own both intellectual superiority and very good book, very recently, The Tyranny of Merit, which is very much the sort of more philosophical end of the future of capitalism. My publisher sent it to him, and he came up with a very powerful endorsement of the book.
0: Yes, very interesting things to say about identity. And I wasn't planning on getting there just yet, but it's fascinating how people's identities have changed over time. And and you you talk about a moment in history where we had a very strong national identity, particularly right after World War II, there was a common purpose, a common mission that was shared by people, most of the folks in the UK and, and the US. And this common purpose disintegrated and people's identity now is based more on, let's say, their job or their skills so that when, you know, you ask someone who they are, what they do, they might say, I'm a lawyer or I'm a professor rather than saying I'm an American or I'm, I'm an Englishman. And this echoes the, the comments that you have about the prerequisites for successful development where without a sense of national identity, the provision of public goods is less likely to happen. Is this breakdown in national identity what's driving kind of the underinvestment in public goods that we see in, in our countries?
1: I think it's, it's driving a lot of problems because I like to use the distinction now between nationalism and patriotism because nationalism has sort of now become associated with aggression against another group, aggression against another country. And that's obviously always pretty ugly. But patriotism needn't be associated at all with aggression. It's associated with loyalty to a large community. In practice, the biggest collectivity of community we've managed to get of people being mutually loyal as a nation. Why does that really, really matter? Because once people sort of see themselves as, as a we, with mutual respect and mutual obligation, then they become willing to comply with the things that's necessary to help the we, the collectivity. And so they're prepared to sacrifice their own individual interest for this common purpose. They want to get the good opinion of others in the community. And to get that good opinion, they actually have to put the community's interests above their own. And we've seen that play out with COVID. And frankly, I mean, some societies have managed to rally together and say, yes, here's a new common purpose. Let's get rid of COVID. In Europe, the most successful country dealing with Covid was not Britain, Denmark. Denmark is led by a a very modest woman, single mother, But when she says we, other Danes think, yeah, you're like us. You're not getting out of a corporate jet. You've not been to a fancy school or something. You're just one of us. And so she just said, look, we've all got responsibilities here now that Covid's around. Don't give your neighbour Covid. So if you're an old guy like me, Stay out of the way of the young people so they can get on with their lives. If you're a young person with children, don't kill granny. And so the Danes completely avoided the first wave of COVID. They completely avoided the second. They got caught with the third wave over Christmas, and they've already got rid of it. So they have the the lowest mortality from COVID in Europe. They also have the lowest economic hit because they were able to get on with their lives. So there wasn't a trade-off let's save lives at the expense of the economy. It was just they managed to do both through that philosophy of we all have moral responsibilities to protect each other from catching COVID. And then I think of America when COVID hit, you will remember like back to March 2000, and my searing memory is of long queues outside gunshots. From afar, that sounded to me More like shoot your neighbor than protect your neighbor. Shoot your neighbor isn't really that good a strategy in avoiding COVID. So that's the difference between a society that can come together rapidly around willing compliance through a modest leader who's able to communicate widely to everybody and be trusted and a society not led by a particularly modest leader, not particularly trusted by everybody, not particularly saying we all need to protect each other from spreading COVID, and the rest is history. So, without this importance of willing compliance, but around many, many issues, without willing compliance, states can't function
0: that discussion is built around a model of, of signaling, right? Status signaling. And the metropolitan elites are, by shifting their source of identity to skill, it's a way for them to acquire esteem, in your argument. And so it's very important for them to distance themselves from the folks who don't have that esteem. And one way, you argue, is to dismiss patriotism, to to put down the, the rest of the country. And I found it interesting that in the COVID conversation, there was quite a bit of signaling in that way, right? So the, the urban elites, they wanted everybody to know that, that they were dismissive of the, the rest of the country. And then the rest of the country more or less doubled down on an entirely different attitude in order to signal something else. So it seemed like people's attitudes towards COVID were really more about self-expression than concern for the public good.
1: I saw a wonderful snippet. So I don't know how well no, it is in America, maybe it's famous across your society, but it's about attitudes, would you feel safe going to have a haircut? Which seems a very mundane sort of thing. Hard to see how are you willing to go and have a haircut it would be very political, but it slips perfectly by political allegiance. So in this case Republicans say yeah, sure, and Democrats said, Oh no, no. So what on earth was going on there? It was presumably Republicans following the advice of the president, never mind all this, just drink some bleach or whatever, versus the Democrats who were trying to virtue signal that no, 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 they're desperately concerned to protect other people. So yes, it's extraordinary how very mundane aspects of life have now become contaminated by this, this lobotomy and the virtue signaling of the successful. If we go back to 1950, it wouldn't have been like that. The chief executive of a big company would have been proudly American and not ashamed to say so, and wouldn't have said that in a way of an aggressive statement against somewhere else. He would have said it because people had just fought all together.
0: Well, you also talk about how social democracy was sort of an ideal that was shared by a large chunk of the population, particularly in, in Europe and in the UK, and that, that ideal has disintegrated. And I think you, you kind of pin the blame, if there's blame to be pinned, on economists in part. It's okay as economists, we can bash economists, but also as on the lawyers in a very different way. And when you discuss the economists, I think you're criticizing them for only reading half of Adam Smith. Your discussions about social obligations and about signaling and it was really drawn from the other half of Adam Smith. So if I think you're, you're arguing for a more... Inclusive economics, one that thinks a little more broadly about the the human condition. How is it that economists are, are to blame for what's transpired and what's led us to this impasse?
1: Yeah, I think we got a very crude version of human nature when we were formalizing economics, which we really did in the 1950s, into models. We wanted some account of human motivation. And the 50s, 1950s, was the peak period of a crude Darwinian account of evolution, the survival of the fittest. And economists' sort of casual interpretation of that was to say, well, the only, you know we've evolved to be greedy, selfish, and lazy. And that's what we put in our models. We're greedy. The more we can have, the better. We're selfish. The only person we care about in those models is ourselves, and we're lazy, work enters negatively in the utility function. And that's it in the typical simple economic model. That's what undergraduates learn for many, many years. They're still embedded in all the fancy models. That's the sort of engine of uh, human behavior, greedy, lazy, selfish. And we're all a bit greedy and all a bit lazy and all a bit selfish, because we're mammals, and mammals have evolved to be greedy, lazy, and selfish. But we now know from modern evolutionary biology that we're a very, very unusual mammal. The giants of modern evolutionary biology, Joe Heinrich, head of the department at Harvard, Nicholas Christakis, head of the department at Yale, they both take the trouble of producing readable books, which even though economists can manage, which tells you a very different story. It tells you that this greedy, lazy, selfish account of human nature is a complete travesty. It's not a bad account of most other mammals. I've got a cat, and I look at my cat, Grizu, and actually she really does exemplify economic man. She's really greedy, and she's very selfish. You should see her with the other cat and the dog. And she's extraordinarily lazy. So I think, as economists, we've got a very good account of catus economicus, but we haven't got an adequate account of human beings, except in a few very limited contexts. So the models are not totally useless, but they're only safe in very narrowly defined contexts where greedy lady selfish is good enough. And the trouble is, we've applied those models all over the place, it's such an imperialist subject in economics that we apply applied those models to a vast range. You know, Gary Becker applied them to the family of all damn things. Greedy, lazy, selfish. No, no, I'm sorry. That might be true of one or two families, but it's not true of most. It's just not what's going on within a family. What does Christarchus and Hyman tell us? They tell us that humans are very unusual We've evolved to bond into big groups and value the good opinion of others in the group. And that good opinion doesn't necessarily reduce to a struggle over status. It can be a mutual thing. We can have mutual respect. It can be a threshold level. Here's the behavior that is, as long as you're over that threshold of behavior, everybody in the group can respect everybody else. Here's what we're trying to achieve, some common purpose. In order to achieve that common purpose, here's the action we need to do. And those of us who do that action, we're over the threshold. We've earned the respect of the community. And being able to do that at grand scale is at its best what a patriotic society does. That's what America in the post-war era managed to do. There's a marvelous book come out Since the Future of Capitalism by Robert Putnam called The Upswing. He just exemplifies that that story. The Upswing is this this surge of uh, willingness to put the interest of the community ahead of the individual. So that was the catastrophe in economics, getting seduced by a completely Mickey Mouse version of human behavior.
0: Well, you talk about how rational economic man should be redescribed as rational social woman and and I found that provocative. But the other point that you make is that the problem is not just that economists have a faulty model for describing and understanding humans, but that by creating policies that were built on this descriptive model, they've essentially changed people to become more like what the model describes them as. In other words, it's become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and so I'm wondering about that because, you know, Marxism had a faulty understanding of human behavior, that we were all going to become selfless, and it didn't seem to change people one bit. So why is it that this positive model has had an impact on, on people and kind of destroyed?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's two answers to it. One is it subtly changes people's norms. And so we know, unfortunately, that students who learn economics gradually become more selfish. Why? I assume because they're gradually learning, oh, that's what we mean by being rational. To be rational is to behave like this. I remember a story of two young guys in the common room and there was a communal pot of coffee and whoever emptied the pot was supposed to fill it up and one young guy had caught the other having taken the last cup of coffee without having filled it up. And so the the second young guy pointed out this moral failing to the first young guy. And the first young guy looked a bit sheepish for a moment, but then said, oh, but it wasn't in my self-interest. And they both said, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. As if that exonerated the behavior. So that's part of the answer, that we've actively changed the norms. That was most pronounced, unfortunately, in business school where Milton Friedman's dictum that the sole purpose of the firm was to to maximize profits, which had some rationale and efficiency on a set of assumptions which had never held anywhere in the real world, but that was all part of the assumptions built into the model. But that then got absorbed into business schools and taught. And by about the 1990s, that first vintage of re-educated MBAs were rising high in companies. And so companies literally switched their mission statements from the purpose of this company is to be a really good chemicals company, and chemicals matter for society, because to the mission of this company is to maximize shareholder value. Now, whoever got up in the morning saying said, today I'm going to maximize shareholder value, it's not a proper motivation at all. That produced a lot of institutions, firms, which were run ostensibly with this assumption that people in them were greedy, lazy, and selfish, and would only behave properly if incentivized to do so. How did you incentivize to do so? Well, economics had come up with the principal agent theory that answered that one. You watch people like a hawk, and you tie their monitored behavior to high-powered incentives. And so everything became built around the assumption that people could only be motivated by basically carrots and sticks. And that included the chief executive, who was on a massive performance bonus, which of course he managed to point his friends to the remuneration committee so that they gained that one. But this meant that the institutions in which a lot of people worked were designed to lure people into behavior where, in order to earn a living, that's how they had to behave. Now, we are a mammal. We've got in us some of the instincts of my cat. But we're also have evolved to be this very unusual mammal. A mammal who naturally wants to get the good opinion of others, cares about others, builds mutual commitments. That's how we've succeeded as a species. That's why we're above cats in the hierarchy of living. But the institutions that we're in can either drag us down towards catus economicus or lift us up towards our better nations. And we have built over the last 40 years too many institutions designed to drag us down. Not only did a lot of firms do that, but then the public sector decided it better imitate the strategies of firms. And so you've got this same wretched structure in the public sector of monitored incentives in activities where it was completely inappropriate. Some of the activities that are in the public sector highly ethically purposive, people doing things that just give them a huge amount of intrinsic pleasure, really, from being able to do things for others. You know, at its best, that's teaching. I don't want to be on a teaching system where the more my students praise what I do, the more money I get. I don't want to go into a class thinking, oh, let's say that and I'll earn a bit more money. I want to go into a class and educate those kids. But that's not the structure we build.
0: Well, I think, isn't the shareholder primacy movement motivated in part by a realistic cynicism, which economists share with critical theorists? that when a firm says that it's motivated by public interest, this is just kind of uh, window dressing over what's really going on behind the scenes. I mean, similarly, critics of the, the golden age you describe in the 50s and 60s would argue that this was built on racism. It was built on on oppression of ethnic minorities, of disenfranchised people, on women. Wouldn't that be the critique that by having this this ideology, this pervasive illusion of, of collective mission, it kind of conceals a lot of the power structure
1: the we wasn't big enough. in america The we definitely wasn't big enough in britain in the 40s 50s we didn't have anything like this sort of racial divisions we obviously have the the gender stuff and so i'm not nostalgic for the past we need to build as bigger inclusive we as is possible but the idea that the alternative to a we is just me a set of individuals like a sack of potatoes, that's not right. The retreat from we into me doesn't produce a more caring society. It just produces a more selfish society. And if there's no willing compliance with common purposes, if that erodes, that's a huge loss. And let me challenge you on this business of the cynicism. Of course, we're right to be cynical about some aspects of especially current behavior of firms. So the story I enjoy most at the moment is Goldman Sachs fighting the law case against the Arkansas Teachers Pension Fund. It's a live case at the moment where Goldman Sachs' mission statement says something about our top priority is always the interest of our clients. So we serve the interest of our clients.
0: You mean the Muppets?
1: That's right. So that's the the people they serve. And the Arkansas Teachers Association is suing them on the grounds that whatever you were doing with us as the client, it clearly wasn't in our interest. Goldman Sachs' defense is not. I mean, if you think about it, they could have had lots of defenses. They could have said, "Ah, well, it was in your interest. It just went wrong. Or they could say, oh, it was a rogue employee, that one. He didn't understand the mission problem. Their defense is to say, of course we didn't mean it. Of course we didn't mean we were working in your interest. And that was just a puff. You knew it was a puff. Here's 30 examples where we stuffed our clients and it became a public scandal and it still didn't move the share price. So everybody knew that it was just a load of rubbish what we were saying. Now, that is true of some firms. It's not true of others. And it certainly wasn't true. Let me give you an example of the the company that when I was a kid was the most respected in Britain was called ICI. It was a chemical firm. It was the dream of any bright young kid like me. If I'm good at science, maybe I could work for ICI. And its mission statement, first it said, this is why the chemical industry is really important for society. And then it said, we aim to be the best chemical company in the world. A young kid with science would think, yeah, that's worth doing. And then in the early 90s, That mission statement literally got removed, and in its place came, our mission is to maximize shareholder value. Now, I gave this talk for the the Central Bank of Pakistan a couple of years ago. It was a big public lecture. And the speaker's nightmare happened at the end, where an old guy came up and said to me, I used to be a senior manager in ICI. And I thought, God. So I was about to apologize, saying, I don't really know the details of ICI. And then he held out the hand to me and he said, I want to shake your hand because I lived through the destruction of a very fine company as all this bullshit came in. And we were having to spend our time in seminars talking about how to maximize shell value, how we could cut costs and stop doing the vital things that made the company a great company. And so ICI didn't just have a good line of talk. There were thousands of people who lived their lives around that purpose. Of course, they wanted to earn a living as well. People are not saints. They don't work for nothing. I'm very suspicious of saints. They set the bar too high. Saints are the virtue signals. I believe in recognizing that we are both a bit of catus economicus in us and have the better angels of our nature. And so We need to work in environments where we're rewarded for effort, but where we've given a benefit of trust so that we ourselves can have the agency to behave using all our contextual knowledge to take decisions. And that was what was denied by the monitored incentive structure. It was a structure in which the top, the chief executive knew best. He knew what was needed. And the f- problem was how to get these greedy, lazy, selfish people to obey his commands. So it was a command and control structure that we put in place when what we needed was a devolved structure of individual agency to achieve common purpose by individual and team efforts.
0: Well, you talk about how the family, the firm, and the nation can all serve as kind of arenas in which this mutual obligation and sense of belonging can be located but why not ethnicity or you know here in the united states we are entering into what some people call a new era of tribalism where these salient identities are are being emphasized that have to do with one's skin color or ancestry or so forth why can't these be venues for social obligation. And, and this may take us back to the discussion in the emerging markets. And in, in the book, you talk about how it's important to have a sense of when there's an alignment between kind of ethnic and national boundaries, that you're more likely to have a, a solid state. And this may take us back to the discussion of the lawyers, because it seems like this identity is built on a, a system of rights rather than one of obligations.
1: Here's the problem with things like ethnicity is as the entities. Of belonging and you're quite right ethnic groups can form communities within which there's a lot of mutuality but they're not porous identities and so as a white man i can't join the community of black men so it's not a porous identity just as a black man you can't join the community of white men so if we're going to use as our core identities black and white we will be in different groups. We can't build a common purpose across that ethnic divide. And yet, most surely in all societies, that's what we need to do. And that's the problem in a lot of poor societies in Africa, that because people have organized around ethnic identities in multi-ethnic societies, it's very hard to build any common purpose at the level of the state. These societies are poor and small, and so the idea that you should fragment a country like Tanzania into 50 different tribal groups, each with its own little state, is ludicrous. One of my great heroes, Julius Nyerere, the first president, founding president of Tanzania, spent his entire first year, in fact, he stood down as head of government. He just spent his first year going around all the different tribal groups. He said, I've not got a nation. I've got 50 tribes. And the first thing I got to do is build a sense of shared identity. And then he did a number of very practical things to try and build a sense of shared identity. And that's why Tanzania is basically stayed peaceful, because he succeeded in building a sense of, of shared Tanzanian identity. So that's the problem that it's very easy for these non-porous boundaries to become oppositional identities. Black versus white. And then we're seeing the world as a zero-sum game where there's no scope for collaboration. And yet there is huge scope for collaboration. Very few purposes where the sensible organization is racial. For most purposes, the sensible organization is some purpose that people have. When I go to my department and teach, I teach with a range of people of different ethnicities, and we sit and meet and discuss together how we got to conduct the teaching. In our department, I was very proud that when COVID struck, until the entire university was closed down, there was a phase when we were permitted to teach, but with a lot of social distancing. And so our big classrooms weren't big enough, anything like big enough, to teach everybody. But we all agreed, let's teach four times our usual hours. We will just do four times as much teaching. So all these students who've just arrived will get a proper Oxford experience of face-to-face contact in a class. And that's what we did. We didn't get paid anymore for doing it. We did it because we thought that's what our purpose in life as a teacher requires us to do now, which it was. It was the right thing to do. As it happens, most of my students are probably about, 40 different shades of non-white. But it didn't come into it. The same with my fellow teachers. It didn't matter. We had this common purpose.
0: So what I think a lot of people fail to understand when they take this economic view is when they see a weak state or a state that's failed to establish this national identity that's susceptible to what people call corruption, they view it through the economic lens and they see it as individuals maximizing themselves when in fact much of it is really about obtaining resources for one's group or obtaining resources so there's, it's actually motivated by a, a loyalty or a group identity which trumps that of the state.
1: People very seldom operate as individuals. They operate in gangs. In the weakest states what we see is gangs looting a common resource and fighting each other and that is catastrophic for the society and tragic. It's an abuse of identity. It's identity that is destroying the whole, the society. That's the danger we should all be guarding against. Of course we should form in groups. We should form in groups around common purposes. And those groups should be porous enough that anybody who wants to join in that purpose can do so.
0: I think you would argue that the saliency of these tribal identities in the West is harmful, and and ironically its original motivation may come from John Rawls, which is, as I say, ironic because John Rawls is certainly unobjectionable in terms of his motivations. But you argue that through this rights-based lawyer approach, his ideal has been distorted and skewed. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So this is the abuse of the concept of human rights. Two abuses, one is the collapse of the concept of human rights into individual rights, and the other is the degradation of human rights, whereas human rights really start at the level of the rights of people in a society. And in the poor and fragile societies where I spend a lot of my time, what is the big human right that's being abused? It's not individual data protection or something, it's that millions of people are living in fear of hunger and in fear of violence. And the proper cause is to help the society to climb out of that hunger and violence that happens as people come together across these gang divides to some common purposes. I think Rawls has now been superseded by Sandel's very powerful concept of contributive justice. Rawls was all about distributive justice, as if there was a cake to be chopped up. Whereas Sandel's concept of contributive justice is that we all have agency, and that agency is to be used so that we all contribute to cooking the cake. Now, in order to contribute to cooking the cake, we have to be empowered with the abilities and opportunities to do so. And so the agenda of contributive justice has this sort of backstory of everybody needs to be prepared for a position where they have the skills and opportunities to contribute to society. And that's a big agenda. But I think it's a very much more noble agenda than fighting over how to chop the bloody cake up. Let's cook it. And in the poor societies I work on, fighting over a very, very tiny cake really is a pitiful activity.
0: I think you spent most of your career trying to think about policies and interventions that can be done to help the bottom billion. And in this book, you turn to some policies that you think can help our own, the people within our own countries that are experiencing economic problems. And you have some provocative policy proposals, one of which involves transferring wealth from the metropolitan areas to those that are, that are more remote. Maybe you could describe how you, you think about that. Why is it that the metropolitan areas have become so much wealthier and and so much more powerful and important than these cities like Sheffield, which were left behind? And how would we remedy this? And why would we want to remedy this? Why can't we just let these cities empty themselves out and send them off to the ice flow and be done with them, right? Who needs Sheffield? Who needs Detroit? Why do we need these cities to come back? One of the things that I found very interesting is that Mobility in the United States, geographical mobility is at its lowest point in our entire history. So what happened in, in the 18th century is if you used up all the nutrition in the soil, you just packed your, got on your horse and went somewhere else. And, you know, during the Dust Bowl in the 30s, you couldn't farm in Oklahoma. So everybody just came to California. So why doesn't everybody just clear on out of Sheffield, clear on out of Glasgow, clear on out of Detroit and just move to greener pastures? That's an argument I think that some people make instead of trying to rescue these areas.
1: I'm astonished that when you say this is a controversial suggestion, it's not a controversial suggestion in Britain. There's been a recent survey. It's the one common purpose that almost everybody in Britain is agreed on: is the need to drastically narrow the spatial differences in opportunity. And why is that so important? Because people naturally belong not just to a group but to a place. A handful of people don't. They flit around from one place to another. That's a very small minority.
0: Yes, you know, in America, no matter where you go, every place has McDonald's, every place has Walmart. In America, you never even know where you are. Maybe in England, it's, it's a bit different.
1: You do know where you are, and I bet you do, without any doubt. People naturally bond to place, even though, superficially, places all look alike. You don't have to scratch very far below the surface to discover big differences and also big loyalties to those differences. People tend to love the place where they grew up and be attached to it and so want to stay. And it's not just the place. It's a whole network of their friends and relatives. That's why people stay put. We know that we get much more happiness from our relationships than from our consumption of material goods. And so the thought of, in order to get more material goods, I need to move away from all the relationships that mean something to me, that's a pretty stark thing to present people with. It might just about work if you're 18 and you're feeling a bit restless. But even then, actually, it's a very cruel dilemma. It's a very cruel dilemma for parents. One of the things that's common in the north of England is that the parents of working class kids don't even want their children to get a good education because if they got a good education, there aren't any opportunities to use that good education in their hometown. And so a good education for their kids would just be an environment in which then they had to say bye-bye. So indeed, it would present there. There are two possible outcomes if you put your bets on education in a very poor town. One is that your kid tries but fails. Your kid feels terrible because he's competing with kids with much better opportunities elsewhere. And the other is he tries and succeeds, like I did, and then he says, i'm mum and dad, and that's their tragedy.
0: I think what was novel about the proposal was that it wasn't simply about taxing wealthy and transferring, transferring money to the less wealthy. It was really geographical.
1: Yeah, so there's two concepts that are linked together. One is that, why is it ethically right? It's not just a transfer from rich people to poor people. It's a transfer to people who actually should have a share in the high productivity of the metropolitan skilled. Why? Because the metropolitan skilled are not productive, super productive, because of their individual abilities, which is what they think. They are very productive, because they're all clustered together in an environment where there is big government, big finance, big infrastructure, big airports. They're in the heart of a web of connectivity. In Britain, London, every damn thing happens in London. All government decisions are taken in London. All financial decisions are taken in London. Both the international airports are in London. The link across the channel is in London. All the rail hubs go to London and all the motorways go to London. And who paid for all that? We all did. Who created the legal system which supports the courts in London? We all did that. That was the struggle for democracy. Our ancestors, we all did that. And so we are all entitled to a share of those, what is called in economics, rents of agglomeration. And instead, those rents of the agglomeration are being captured by two groups. One is the people who own land and and property in the metropolis. And the other is people with a lot of skills who just live in bedsits in the metropolis so that they don't have to pay much in the rare rent, but they earn these big salaries and they can drive around in their Porsches and Maseratis, or whatever the equivalent is in America, because they are capturing very big returns, which should rightfully belong to everybody. And so that's the basis for why they don't deserve it. But then what we need to spend it on, not just transfers of consumption. What people in poor places want is not just consumption. They want the dignity of the opportunities to be productive. And for that, we need to transfer not just money, but the opportunities for productivity, and that is good jobs and skills. And that is the agenda that actually levels up a country spatially. It's the transfer of big bucks to people who deserve it from people who have captured it, and it's the investment in economic opportunities in a place, those opportunities having disappeared through acts of public policy, such as encouraging technological change that costs jobs and opening trade that costs jobs. Those things are potentially good things, but they're only good things if the people who win are required to compensate properly the people who lose, so that nobody loses.
0: Well, this takes you back full circle to your original work, which is Monetary transfers, just by themselves, are probably not going to do the trick, right? All you're doing is creating a honeypot that everyone's going to fight over, and now that local authorities no longer need to concern themselves with the interests of their constituents. How can you utilize the insight that you've learned from the failures of development policy to design a a workable policy for these poorer areas within our developed economies?
1: Yes, exactly. Again, the key... Insight there is that there are multiple equilibria. And a good image for a multiple equilibrium is, is a sailing dinghy. So sailing dinghy has two equilibria, local equilibria. Right way up is locally stable. Upside down is locally stable. In fact, upside down is even more locally stable than right way up. When you learn how to sail a sailing dinghy, you spend a lot of your time trying to turn an upside down dinghy back upright. And a lot of the societies that I work on in poor countries, are analogous to upside-down dinghies. We know that these societies could be structured in a way that produced a much higher level of productivity and so a much higher level of income. What they need is firms, skills. They need to turn the dinghy upright. And, of course, they need ideas in people's heads that produce a lot of willing compliance with common purposes rather than the gang warfare that they've got. And the same is true in poor regions of our countries. They are upside-down sailing deacons, which are locally stable. They're they're the deaths of despair. People are despondent, and so the the talented young people leave. Firms don't go there because they look to be talent deserts. You don't get any of the support services that small firms need in order to grow into big firms, and so on. So trying to turn those upside-down dinghy is the right way up requires a coordinated effort and a new, if you like, a new narrative, a hopeful but convincing narrative of a good future instead of a bad future. At the moment, these depressed places are trapped into a common narrative of failure and doom, and that is a self-fulfilling position. It's the concept in economics of the gothic The beliefs that people hold produce outcomes which appear to validate the beliefs. So if you believe a place is doomed and you're doomed, your behavior and the behavior of other people looking at the society aggregates into behavior which takes you back into confirming the beliefs.
0: So we have to have some kind of conditional aid. I mean, here in in San Francisco, we spend $55,000 per homeless person, which just means that we have more homeless people. And, and we have cities like Washington, D.C. that spend more on per pupil than Princeton, New Jersey, and yet the literacy rates are very low. If we're going to infuse money into sort of some of the failing areas, how do we make sure that that money is well spent?
1: So first of all, this is not something we can do to them. It's something they have to forge as their own strategy But they need resources to do it. Some of them won't use it very well. The best strategy, I think, is to try and help places to come together around some sort of forward-looking common strategy. That has to happen. It won't happen everywhere. But where it happens and where that forward-looking strategy is not manifestly stupid, it's worth supporting it. And not conditionally, not saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, but it's sure worth supporting it. And then some of these will succeed, some of them won't. But the ones that succeed will be, wow, we didn't expect that place to recover, but it has, and then it will get copied. That, according to a wonderful book by Heinrich, is the secret of our success as a species. We're very good at copying success. Think how East Asia developed. 40 years ago, four little places got decisively ahead of the pack. South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Taiwan. They were piddling little places compared to the the big giants of Asia. But that success got copied in the community of Asian countries. And pretty rapidly, it spread to virtually everywhere. That is the process that we need to ignite in Africa, and they have to own their own strategy. That can't be something that we do to them. We can do with them, but it has to be their strategy that they own, only if they own it will they implement it, only if they design it themselves, right? And we need exactly the same thing in our broken towns and cities in America and Britain. Of course, Pittsburgh is an example of that. It used to be a broken city. It's now, I think, one of the top 12 cities in America. And I know the mayor... Who actually was instrumental in turning Pittsburgh around? And that was a fantastic achievement by Pittsburgh. He was able to lure some people who'd grown up in Pittsburgh back to come to Pittsburgh and help. They were successful people who wanted to restore Pittsburgh. They had fond memories for it, and they did. And they worked together on a strategy of revival. And of course, the universities played a big role, the local firms played a big role, and the cities administration played a big role, and the state. So there you had this network of common purpose around very different entities, which all had a role to play. The universities were generating the ideas, and training the skilled people. The venture capitalists were bringing in finance, and the local entrepreneurs were picking up the ideas generated by the universities, getting the the financial support of venture capital. And then some of those firms, a minority, grew to become major firms and they became the major employers creating opportunity. So success is entirely possible. Turnarounds are entirely possible. Where we're in places such as my own country of of England, where no region outside London has been successful, there's no English city which is above the national average productivity, except for London. Everywhere is below the national average productivity because London's so much more productive. That's the situation where at the moment we don't have any successes to emulate, and so we need to create some, and that's going to be by experiment. Some will work, some won't. The ones that work will become the equivalent of the Taiwans, the Singapores that get copied.
0: Yeah, that's remarkable. England is really more like a, a developing country in that respect, a Latin American or African country.
1: Yeah. But, you know, parts of America could do with success that they emulate. So there are too many flyover cities in America. And that whole term is disgrace, isn't it? You can think about it.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, this has been a great conversation. We did barely even scratch the surface of your, your original work, this this stuff which is I'm a big fan of this work for many, many years. And there's so much that we could talk about with respect to your work in Africa, which has consumed most of your life. But this book also is, is very interesting. The future of, of capitalism, check it out. Paul, you have a new book out with John Kay, that's right.
1: Indeed, it's but it's not come out in America. It's called Greed Is Dead. It's basically a, a thesis that our societies at the moment have hit peak greed. And that the intellectual underpinnings of the case that greed is other than loathsome, those intellectual underpinnings have now been destroyed. They are no longer intellectually respectable. And so gradually as those ideas filter through, we will recede from peak greed to a more communitarian society. So it's a prediction of a happier future nice to read a book that predicts a happier future.
0: Well, I look forward to reading that book and continuing the conversation. Thank you, Paul, for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at com.